Welcome to Tech Talks, a podcast about the impact of technology on humanity. I'm Kirsten Martin, the director of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center, or what we like to call ND Tech. In these discussions, we discuss an important idea, paper, article, discovery in tech ethics. And today, I'm so happy to be joined by Salome Filyun. Salome is an assistant professor of law at the University of Michigan. She studies the law governing digital information and interested in how information law structures inequality and how alternative legal arrangements might address that inequality. And we're going to talk about some of that work today. Salome's academic work has appeared in the Yale Law Journal and the University of Chicago Law Review Online, as well as technical avenues such as the ACM Conference on Fairness, Accountability, and Transparency. So today we're going to take a deeper dive into this article in the Yale Law Journal, A Relational Theory of Data Governance. And I, I, I will just say at the beginning, I highly recommend this article. And the reason is that I think it does such a great job of being deceptively simple in the language on a really complex idea. And so I think if you don't know the background, and I think you do a great job of giving that background, of the nuanced turn that you make and how we look at privacy and data governance and the, the, the frailties of what we do right now, and that this different approach to data governance, which I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about the old way of thinking or what we might like to think is the old way, the pre-existing way of thinking, focused on individual control and data subject financial gain, which I thought that that's the current way that we think about governing privacy, governing data, and how they're both limited. And then we can get into kind of your, the solution, which is more relational. But can you say a little bit more about this current way of thinking that we have around privacy or, or data governance more generally? Yeah. Um, and first of all, thank you so much for um, the kind words about the piece. <laughs> it did not come out that way the first time. I think a lot of oh, early um, a lot of um, early draft reading by people near and dear to my um, sort of intellectual journey who helped make it as clear as it is. So yeah, I'm really um, happy to hearten to hear that um, and you know all, all things get passed on to my behind the scenes <laughs> friends and, and mentors and colleagues. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll sort of just quickly recap some of what I sketch out in the piece about like sort of how our, our sort of like typical intuitions are formed um, or, or sort of how we typically approach thinking about the kinds of legal interests or claims we have about information in that kind of traditional privacy register. So the, the old way, as you put it, or sort of the, the traditional way is to sort of think about privacy as governing. I like to think of it as like, it's like a little house around all of us, our little sphere of autonomy. And privacy is sort of what protects that that bubble. And so there's this feeling of like, much like we would say, you know, the difference between someone being in my house legitimately or illegitimately is like the difference between someone being like a trespasser and a guest um, is like, did I invite them in? And somewhat intuitively, we just kind of extend that to this like idea of like, I have my little personal bubble and uh, the difference between whether or not like a company or like a form of a, a government surveillor or whatever is like entering my little sphere, my little personal sphere legitimately or illegitimately, illegitimately is also like, did I invite them in? And the the law sort of tends to think about that sort of like consent relationship in these two big, I'm generalizing, but like two big buckets. Yep. And so one of them is like, yep. if you didn't, if I didn't invite you in <laughs> and you're in, then you have sort of like undermined some sort of property interest that I have and you owe me money. <laughs> or you have sort of like undermined some sort of dignitary 
right that I have to sort of like govern my own sphere of autonomy. And that's not like a quantitative deficiency that you can make up with in money, but it's sort of like a qualitative deficiency that you've wronged me in this kind of expressive or in dignitary way. And, and what I recap in the earlier parts of the article are sort of saying, you know, there's like reasons to think about privacy in these two ways that like a lot of our life being datafied either is kind of this quantitative deficiency that companies are getting rich off of this valuable resource, which is like them violating our sphere of integrity and we deserve a piece of that pie or, you know, kind of the dignitary account that they're sort of eroding that sphere of, of autonomy, sort of my personal sphere. They're like trampling through my house all the time. And this is a dignitary violation. And the response needs to be to like thicken up those walls and shore up the door and make sure that when I let somebody in, I really mean it, right? Like strengthening up consent. Yeah. And so that would be, so the equivalent, if, if we're going to extend this would be, so then the solutions are things like pay me for my data, yes. you know, so like that's my undermining of the property idea. So before you come in the house, pay me for it. And then you can come in my house or showing up the walls of like explicit notice. Yes. So this is the notice and consent idea fixing. And that, that fixes, I'm putting this in air quotes, even though we're just audio, this fixes the dignitary harm of like not being asked permission first. And so like kind of forcing it on that way. And so this is, and this is what I liked about it is it really does encapsulate the two arguments. I get told, especially in a business school all the time, well, the fix is why don't they just pay us for our data? And you're kind of like, that just does not get to what's going on. But what I liked about what you said is, and this is the aha moment is that these myths, and I'm just going to quote you here, the point of data production in a digital economy to put people in population-based relations to one another. And so we're, we're treating this as like one-off transactions where the way the structure of this market or this economy works is actually in order to gain population level insights. And so the harms might be at that level as well. And one of the, and so what I liked about it is you're kind of like, but that we're, we're having these fixes that don't work at the way the world is actually working. And so that, so that's the turn that you're making, right. Is to, to talk a little bit as a different, as a different approach. Yeah. And so, you know, I think a lot of what I'm trying to do initially in this piece is just to say like, look, this little model of like the house and whether or not you think it's like a toll that I ought to charge people for coming through my house or like thinking up the walls, that's all well and good. That's just not actually an accurate model of this economy and how it actually works and how like why companies and governments are interested in collecting information about us to begin with, but also like how insights about us that might trigger us being concerned about being people trampling through our little personal house or whatever actually even works. And, and, and it's not just about the harms. It can also be about the benefits, which is sort of another um, exactly. aspect of the, of, of the, the piece. So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the reorientation that I'm trying to do is just to say that it seems really stupid and obvious in some sense to, to point out, but like any data scientist would be like, yeah, duh. But, you know, information <laughs> about me is never just like the way it's the reason it's collected and the way that it's operationalized and used in the in the digital economy is never just about me qua me. Like they don't collect information about Salome that they stick in the Salome folder to make decisions about Salome. They collect information about Salome that's like, you know, goes into forming populations. So millennial, <laughs> like woman, like likely to own a cat, you know, <laughs> like Netflix user. And it's that sort of population pastiche that then says, let's allows them to drive insights that are like, 
women millennial cat owning Netflix users <laughs> are likely to right, right, be right. interested in purchasing this like stupidly expensive Japanese ceramic cat bowl. <laughs> and so <laughs> what's sort of important about that from like a legal perspective is that insofar as I have like a legally cognizable interest that the law is going to like protect and give me a claim over, it doesn't attach to that one-off individual transaction. It attaches at the point of like those populations being formed and insights being derived from those populations and choices that are being made about those populations. And so that's just a very different way for us to be thinking about what kind of legal interests we're in the business of protecting when we say that people have legal interests in information about them. Right. Yeah. And I, to, to this point, it's we, what you talk about is like, and I, what I liked about this is that you talked about the relational aspect of data production gets to both the social value that's created. So the, the point of like, kind of like great insights that we can get from big data, but also then the harm of the data collection and use in a digital economy. And so we're looking at, at the harm at these individual level transactions where the real action is happening in this like in the neighborhood behind. And so, and in some ways, whether or not I consented to the data collection or not, by the way it works, they can still draw inferences about me. So I might actually still be harmed in the same way as everyone else in the group. And so it doesn't, I, my dignity might be maintained, but it doesn't at that one point, but it's actually the value and the harm that's being brought forward by this is actually happening no matter what. And so it really, I almost had this visual of all of us looking at like, this like a needle or like the tree, like the leaves in the forest, but like missing the forest, you know what I mean? Like, so we're looking at these little pieces and trying to understand how do we govern this individualized transaction? And we, we've kept our eye off the ball. I mean, not everyone, yeah. there's many people who <laughs> yeah. are looking at it, but the real action is on data governance broadly. Yes. And so not on these individual privacy things. And so I, I just think that that, it, and what I liked about it also is that you're talking about the social value and the harm that it comes from it as well. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of, again, it's like a lot of these points <laughs> um, seem actually, you know, I think to me quite clear and hopefully are, are um, clearly expressed in the piece, which is like the thing that makes data collection about people valuable is the fact that, of our sociality. Like the fact that I do share meaningful similarities with people who live in the same neighborhood as me or are also millennials or are also women. Like that's what it means to be socially constituted beings. Like who we are like has a great deal to say about who we are as people, um, that we exist in relation with one another and in community with one another, which is basic to what it means to be a person. And that's what makes <laughs> population level data analysis, like the big of big data, socially valuable, um, is that we can be meaningfully understood in this population level way. And I, I think that's like a profoundly, I don't know, it's not bad or good. It's that's just like what it means to be a person. <laughs> um, but, you know, as you sort of hinted at. I think a lot of what I'm sort of trying to reorient is like what, like you said, those sort of from the leaves to the forest is to say, like, that is what it means to be a person. And by the same token, like a lot of our analog social relations are currently marked by conditions of exploitation and domination and oppression um, and marginalization. So it shouldn't surprise us that the sort of digital recreations and rematerializations and, and sort of re-manifestations of the way we relate mm -hmm. to one another inherits those problems, also become right. marked by conditions of domination and exploitation and alienation and that's just 
a different account of what it is that we might be worried about in the process of datification than did someone enter my house with permission or not. And I think, and this is a subtle, so for what I liked also is by us focusing and asking firms to focus on this handoff of information, being paying someone and getting value for the data that they collected, this trade-off idea, or the notice, give them enough notice, and then as long as they consent, you can do whatever you want. But the thing is that after you get the data, you can do whatever you want. That's that's the focus on both the dignitary reforms and the property-like reforms. Like So either paying someone for the data or the notification for data is that it really never gave any guidance or discussions around what you do with the data afterwards, right? And so this is where we've kind of taken our eye off the ball, so to speak, in private firms and businesses is that we have just said, well, as long as I've gotten the data, I can do whatever I want. And what and what you nicely, like literally take the lens and say, I, not that you say, I don't care how you get the data, but pretty much like stop focusing so much on this one thing. Like we have enough rules around that, that's fine. What we need to focus on is this entire cloud or forest and what's going on there. And that's where we need to focus because that's where the value is being created. That's where we're recreating these relationships that are exploitive. You know, that's where all the action is happening. And we're so fixated on this handoff or trading that we're missing giving guidance on the rest of it. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I mean, again, the way I sort of frame it for legal audiences is like consent works as like a a thing we do in law, like, you know, again, to grant the imprimatur of legitimacy to like, is this person in my house or like, you know, whatever, when I am the agent affected by my own decision. I'm teaching contracts next semester. And when I teach my students contracts, I'm going to be like, a contract is bound by consent. Like you agree to the terms of the contract and then you're bound by your contract because we think that consent is doing important moral, political, and legal work, which is to say, I had an opportunity to negotiate these terms. I agreed to them. Now I need to be bound by my promise. Consent doesn't work if I am consenting on behalf of another or another is consenting on behalf of me. But because of how the data economy works, we are functionally consenting on behalf of others and others are consenting on our behalf irreducibly all of the time. So Mm. from a legal perspective, I'm sort of just intervening to say like, we're doing the wrong thing, you know? <laughs> like, and that follows very nicely to your point, which is to say like, I don't even know what it means from like a, I'm granting a stamp of legitimacy on consenting to a data flow. When if I were to never consent to any of that information being granted, if I were to like fully exclude myself from the digital realm, which would be extremely difficult to do, the accuracy of inferences and predictions being made about me because of how many people I'm share population features with would not go down at all. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. They can still they can still know what your concerns are. You know what I mean? Like so it's they just can one know of those what my concerns are, they can know where I live, yeah. they can know which shows I'm likely to yeah. watch, they could know which food I'm likely to be in favor of, they could know with a great degree of certainty whether or not I'm pregnant or likely to become pregnant. Like very intimate decisions that we think of in that dignitary frame, you know, it's very intuitive for us to think about as that dignitary frame. And it's like scary to think that those sorts of insights aren't up to us, but they aren't. Um, which point exactly to, as you said, like this entire kind of backend process of how this information is being used, what sorts of insights are being made about it, how are those driving business decisions? A lot more attention and focus, I think, there is clearly kind of one one implication of the work. Yeah, and th- because that's when and I think you're right to take a critical lens to like what's going on with the data to say, 
right now, I always joke, you know, data would be a natural place to look would be white collar crime for predictive analytics. That would, it'd be pretty natural if you asked people, you know, at the SEC about what they look for with white collar crimes. And, you know, they look for very small changes in expense accounts and all this other stuff. And, and, but we don't use it for that. You know what I mean? Like we use it for other things, you know, like, you know, predicting who's going to be a criminal at the border. We use it for, you know, deciding who's going to get welfare um, by the state, you know, who's going to, what the criminality potential is. So I, I think it's smart to kind of focus more on that. Uh, so, so we talked about like what doesn't work and I want to make sure we get to like part of the ideas of the solution. And so could you say a little bit more about the alternative approach, which is data as a democratic medium, as a, as an alternative approach, the way we think about it? Yeah. Um, so I think you're, um, prompt about white collar crime is, is a really nice sort of segue into this. So I think there's sort of two parts to that solution. One is sort of a theoretical reframing, which is to say, as we sort of talked about a little bit earlier, like when you, when you kind of get out of this permission or payment model to focus on the relationships that are sort of being rematerialized in our data flow. So what it means to be put in relation with other people and what the, the sort of quality of those relationships are, one part of what it means to think about governing those relationships more justly is to say, are they relationships that were they happening in an analog world and we were able to sort of look at them and evaluate them, we would be like, these are relationships where these two entities or these this population of people have relatively equal standing in what this population that they're being brought together in is and what it means to them and what the stakes of that are, um, which is to say there are sort of like procedural and substantive conditions we would want to see <laughs> being met. And that's in part what I mean by democratic is like, is everyone in that that sort of relation, they, are their interests being taken into account? Are we thinking of the people that we're in being put into relationship with as our moral and political equals? And that doesn't always mean that you have to like have a full democratic process for every data flow. That would not be realistic, obviously. Um, but it does mean that certain things where we have like every reason to believe that a certain group of people are very willing to give this information because they enjoy a high status and low risk, but it has clear implications for people that enjoy a lower status and will shoulder much greater risk, that we would look at that data flow with far more skepticism. And here I'm thinking about Good. things like facial biometric data. Like a lot of facial biometric data is being collected by people who want to move through the airport faster because they're business people who travel a lot. They're fairly secure in our social structure. They enjoy a high degree of status and standing. Those systems are being trained on face data that then are increasingly used and incorporated in fairly carceral systems at the border in enforcement. Those, so they're being placed in relation with people who enjoy much lower status in our social structure and face far greater risk from being placed in those data relations. So we don't have to necessarily like convene some democratic process of everyone who has a face, <laughs> but we do have to think about what this, what the quality of that data relation is. And if it's the kind of thing that sets off alarm bells about likely not materializing a relationship in which we are treating people as having equal political standing and taking their interests into account equally. So that's kind of the substantive and the sort of procedural component of what I mean by, by a democratic data relation. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. I remember I was, um, I was talking, what I like about it is um, it's a common, um, I remember 
like getting a review back from a paper, which everyone remembers the reviews back from the papers. But the answer to them was like, well, couldn't the subject of this predictive analytics program, like just complain, like, what do you mean their interests aren't being taken into account? Like they have to be taken into account. And I was like, Oh, why? I mean, like, there's no, yeah. I mean, you're like on the basis of what? Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, like we, it's like, uh, and I mean, not all of us are kind of like thinking like just every actor has an equal amount of power and, and can transact openly in the marketplace. And so if you see people have different political standings in the marketplace and different abilities to actually transact or bargain, then, you know, you could easily have people that are being only subject to the predictive analytics program and, and have no voice whatsoever and no ability to have any voice. And so, and no recourse, what, you know, there's no appeal process or anything along those lines. And so it reminded me when I was bringing up the white collar crime example of like, if you train something out to you know, find white collar criminals or instances of abuse or something like that, and then trained it on welfare. You know what I mean? Like something or something else of the state where then all of a sudden you're taking it from the private company to the state. You're taking it from people who have, you know, are lawyers or have lawyers at the ready to people who have no ability or not trusted at all. Um, and so you can easily see that same idea of training something in one area and then putting it onto another yeah, and I and I think what is really resonates when you read this is how you capture how the world is working right now, both in the benefits that it's creating and the harms, and saying that this idea of data governance covers both. You know what I mean? So it it it, it reinforce because you can't find solutions that don't understand how the benefits are being accrued, um, because otherwise. The, mar the market will go after those benefits. And so you have to kind of understand and encapsulate how the market is actually working or the industry is working at the moment. And so that's what I liked about your paper is that it really does capture the way the world is working right now and where the action is, both the benefits and the harms. And then second, I'll just say that it really, what it offers, and you even say it offers two things, and it better reflects, you know, the economic value being created, but also it gives us another idea about what the harm is, that the, it's different than a property or dignitary harm, that the harms can be exploitation and other harms in the marketplace that exist in the outside the online world or outside the big data world that are just being reinforced in the data world. And so that I think you did both those things really, really well. And I, I really commend <laughs> you, you on the paper. And I, I'll just say that if people get a chance to read it, there's a great example, and we'll run out of time to talk about it. But <laughs> when you talk about Water Corp and Water Org, yeah. and how it's a really thought provoking example of where the property and the consent or dignitary approach fails, and how people who espouse that have a problem navigating between a government-run entity that's trying to conserve water versus someone else that's actually trying to exploit you for your water use. And so you really do a great job of using those examples as well. Thank you. You know, I think definitely for me, part of the kind of intellectual project of this piece was to try to provide a theoretical account of data governance that really did capture both, like really was able to provide an account for what is beneficial about datafying um, you know, about about trying to understand how we are how we are as a society and how we relate to one another in ways that can be extremely helpful and extremely beneficial, while at the same time still providing a very compelling account of why a lot of people are 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 justified in feeling extremely skeptical about how a great deal of datafication has in fact been realized and and the sorts of results that it's had for some of the most vulnerable communities. And so really sort of 
again, we're, we all probably think our, our theoretical accounts are good and com- we should we should hopefully all think they're good and compelling. Otherwise, it's like, why spend years of your life trying to <laughs> articulate them? But I do True. think what's really nice about focusing on relations is you can really see both. You can say, you know, if we can really use this profoundly, um, I think, powerful way of understanding how we relate to one another to try to intervene on those relations of inequality. Like you said, to try to understand things like white collar crime, to understand things like patterns of my water usage and how they might meaningfully be reduced, to try to understand things like how I, as a worker, am connected to a global supply chain and to try to, you know, develop solidarity across that. Like that requires information that requires us to like know what we don't already know and to see those those ways that we are deeply bound up in the project of one another's social constitution. That's very powerful. But at the same time, if those data relations were sort of recreating relations of exploitation, relations of domination, relations of imperialism, it's important to sort of pinpoint that as the account of what is being harmful right now because we don't have the tools individually to sort of like individually consent our way out of that in related work on this topic. And and maybe in the paper too, I've sort of said, you know, if you think about something like I use this example of a location data taken from a global Muslim prayer app being used by the U S military to track the location of Muslims around the world. Like what's wrong about that is not like they didn't get my consent. Right. 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 <laughs> what's wrong about that for a lot of people, a lot of Muslims around the world who are understandably expressing outrage about this on the internet was this idea of like being drafted into the project of oppression of your own community just by having, by having used a prayer app. So right, right. That's yeah, that's kind of a relational know, account of what's wrong with that, you know. Yeah, that's and that's a great example. I mean, because and you, and I like the idea of like you can't consent your way out of that problem or pay off someone enough to get their data. Like that's that's not going to fix the problem because that's actually not where the harm was. It wasn't the consent wasn't the issue. It was like the use of the data in that way. And and you're right. There is that additional. There's a a friend of mine, um, Vikram Bhagava. He has a paper on social media addiction, and he argues the same type of thing, which is if you it's the use of your data almost against your people or yourself. That's a different type of harm than than even the other things that we're talking about. Like it's a it's an issue of like I'm actually contributing to this problem that I I am trying to fight in other areas of my life, and so which is an issue of the use of that data. And I think that you do a great job of of explaining that. And I think there's a lot more to say. I mean, yeah, there's a lot more <laughs> to say about yeah. that. And I think that you, yeah. um, I'm look forward to everything that you're going to do in the future oh, in this thanks. area as well, because I really I can't. I can't recommend it enough. And the, and the intro and even the first like tight 10 pages really encapsulates it. And then you can read the rest of it and look for Watercorp as well as an example. <laughs> so before, um, like I always ask this question. And so is there anyone in the area of tech ethics that we should be paying attention to younger scholars in particular, and it can be from any field. I'm kind of indifferent to fields. Um, but if there's anyone that you kind of like, Oh, I can't wait to see what they're writing about next. Yeah, so a colleague of mine um, who's writing in the European context about smart cities, Beatrice Boteros, mm. um, her work is really great and definitely worth checking out. A colleague of mine up at McGill, Ignacio Cafon, is working on a book on privacy that I'm, you know, his work is very, always very good and very thoughtful. A uh, friend of mine, Electra Bietti, works a lot on sort of antitrust and digital platforms. Oh, um, so she's definitely worth checking out. 
I've only given you legal scholars at this point, which oh, is that's very okay. that's close. That's what you need to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. I mean, that's of that, me. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. I, I totally understand. I think, you know, and I think that I would just say one last thing about what I like about your move to data governance as well, not just privacy, is that sometimes to capture your harms that you're identifying and the solutions, we twist the word privacy into so many ways and like try to stretch it um, because we can't figure out how to talk about the harms that you articulate so well. And so I really like the move to data governance. As, I mean, data governance has existed as a field, so I don't mean to say just that, but to kind of explicitly link the two and then kind of say, look, we have to talk about it in this way because this is really where the action is. Because sometimes we want to, because it's about data, we want to use privacy and keep, and, and then we're talking about inferential privacy. And then we're talking about, you know, like, and it's just, sometimes it's just worth saying this is more about data governance and there's privacy issues within it, but there are other things going on as well. Totally. And so I yeah, think it's I'm, super important. Yeah. I'm very, um, deliberate about using data governance everywhere because I think exactly as you said, there, there are privacy interests being implicated, but there aren't only privacy interests being implicated when we talk about data governance. Oh, one more name that is, I absolutely can't recommend enough is a colleague of mine, Amanda Parsons. Okay. She is actually an international tax scholar, but she writes a lot about sort of the global justice, sort of global tax perspective on taxing digital assets. So how do we tax wealth created from data collection and sort of, oh, interesting. Uh, sort of from like a global perspective. So oh, that's super yeah. interesting. Yeah. She's kind of a, a, yeah, different, different perspective on things, but yeah, um, has written, has written great stuff about it and is very thoughtful. And oh, that's I, I think we're not always thinking about like, there's like this whole other bucket of problem, which is like tax, which is our traditional yeah. redistributive mechanism. And yeah, so she, yeah. Um, she has a great perspective. I've been going to the, pri- I'm not a lawyer, but I've been going to the Privacy Law Scholars Conference for, I don't know, like 10 years. And I, I always call lawyers like the tip of the spear. Like they, <laughs> they just are so, because they're big and good at issue spotting. And I realized that talking to Casey, Casey Feisler at University of Colorado, and she talked about issue yeah. spotting as a mechanism of looking for things. And I realized that is how you're trained is to be issue spotters. And we are literally they, trained to do that. Yes, exactly. Like that's, that's <laughs> part of, that's what you learn in law school. And so they're just always kind of looking around and trying to understand what's going on and in the real world and then bringing it back. And, and other disciplines just aren't always so nose to the ground of actually trying to find the current thing that's going on. And so I always find it fascinating. Um, to t- and you guys write really well too. So it's easy to follow. <laughs> well, some of you do, but like others are just really long, but that's okay too. So, yeah. well, gosh, thank you so much. I really appreciate yeah. it. No, thank you so much for uh, a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Tech Talks is a production of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center. For more, visit techethics.nd.edu.